everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This episode features an extensive discussion about sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. In 2017, the World Health Organization estimated that 1 billion children across the world between the ages of 2 and 17 have been subject to either physical, sexual or emotional abuse. For this episode I'm speaking to Dr. Franziska Mink. Franziska is a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh focusing on social work. She has pioneered data-driven research in sub-Saharan Africa looking at child abuse and its various manifestations and factors. So let's dive in. Hi Franziska, welcome to Talking Research and really lovely to have you. And to get started, do you want to introduce yourself the way you'd like to be introduced? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Francesca Maik. I'm a lecturer in social work at, in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. And I focus in my research mostly on child abuse victimization in South Africa from an epidemiological point. So looking at risk, um, looking at prevalence rates, and also looking at prevention Hmm and what motivated you to go down this research path and especially looking at child abuse Yeah so it happened in a bit of a roundabout way I never saw myself as an academic um so I studied social work as my undergraduate and uh one of the placements I did was in South Africa in a uh center um for children affected by HIV um and um after I graduated I went came to the UK to work as a child protection social worker because those were the only jobs that were available um and after um 12 months I thought that there needed to be more to this because it was um I was basically firefighting uh, there was no preventative work with families um we always waited for families basically to almost break down in order to to be able to um to to provide services um and that was just because of the financial constraints on on the uh, local authority and so i um looked around and i found a course in uh, an masters course in evidence based social intervention at the university of oxford and i applied and got in to my huge surprise Um and then um I while I was there I met uh Lucy Glover who became my supervisor uh because she had studies that were in South Africa um looking at how AIDS impacts families and she'd asked me whether I wanted to join her research group um and um as we were looking through the data and gearing up for another new study um I said are you actually measuring violence and she said no actually we're not and so i said well can i do that and um i applied for a phd to look at um violence and risk factors for violence victimization in children in south africa and got in and um yeah and it basically took off from there so we did the first study um and the the topic just stuck with me ever since you've researched child abuse in sub-saharan africa extensively and your study in south africa looking at child abuse was 
the first of its kind where you collected data directly from community-based samples and you used it to investigate prevalence, incidence, location and perpetrators of child abuse victimization. So tell me more about that study. Uh, yes, so it was um, it was a really great opportunity. So it was a, um, a study that we did in two provinces with, um, it was really to look at the impact of AIDS in families. But I, because of my PhD, I'd sneaked in these questions about violence. And so we, um, we asked uh, 4,000 children about uh, different types of violence that they might have been exposed to, who the perpetrators were, where these uh, types of violence were happening and... Um, um, and then we we conducted statistical analyses to to look at uh, you know what, what kind of children are at highest risk what are the outcomes of this um, of of experiencing violence and um, how um, you know what is service use like and stuff and so the um, what we found is that um, for physical and emotional abuse um, which are um, two types of child abuse that kind of often go together. There were very high prevalence rates. I think about thirty percent of the children had experienced it in the past year. Um, but um, the um, the perpetrators generally, and that was not surprisingly, were the people that were look up, looking after them most. So either their biological caregivers, so their mother or their father, or um, or whoever um, else was the primary caregiver for the child. And um, the risk factors really reflect kind of the stresses on families. So most families don't. Um, obviously are not um, they're not planning to um, hit their child or growing up so it's, some of it is rooted in uh, cultural understandings of discipline and that children need to be physically disciplined in order to grow up into uh, responsible and um, well-behaved adults but um, but a lot of it is also just rooted in being overwhelmed as a parent and so we found for example that um, families that experience very high levels of poverty were m- more at risk um, of um, uh, abusing their children. Um, families um, where somebody was ill with AIDS, um, so ha- experiencing all of the constraints of being, you know, often um, AIDS illness goes um, alongside em- economical constraints in the family, but also experiencing low mood, um, depression, um, feeling very, very ill, f- fear of dying and so forth. And these... Um, um, in these families, um, there's a higher risk for, for children to experience physical and emotional abuse. And and that is just reflected in the, um, through the kind of stress that these families are experiencing um, and um, that these families need extra support um, in order to be able to cope with um, teenagers who are also who are seeing their parents being ill and who are worrying about their parents being ill and who, as a result of that, may be also displaying behaviors that are more difficult to deal with. Um, and then in terms of sexual abuse, we measured contact and non-contact sexual abuse. Um, so contact in the form of um, uh, touching, unwanted touching or forced uh, penetration and um, um, non-contact sexual abuse in, in the forms of sexual harassment. So like verbal um, uh, sexual um, comments um, or um 
um, having children watch films, um, uh, porn films uh, that, that they don't want to uh, watch. Um, and um, there, um, also not surprising, uh, we saw very high rates um, uh, of perpetrators um, who are no well known to the family. Often it was an intimate partner, so a boyfriend or a girlfriend um, of the child um, or um, a uh, aunt or uncle or just someone from their peer group um, So the um, or a cousin. So the um, the um, the perpetrator sexual abuse are um, in general people that are well known to the child, often that the child trusts, um, uh, and who then uh, use the opportunity to, um, to 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 abuse that trust. Basically, you spoke of emotional abuse. Uh, what is emotional abuse, and have you looked at it in more detail? Yes. So emotional abuse is um, when uh, parents are not meeting the emotional needs of the child in the time of um, making the child feel loved um, as they're growing up. So emotional abuse could just be screaming loud and aggressively at a child, um, at, like regularly, but it could also be demeaning a child, telling them that they're worthless, um, calling them names, telling them that they're stupid, um, threatening them, threatening somebody that they love or threatening to hurt an animal if they, you know, don't comply or um, also um, telling them that the, the ancestors or, um, in, or the or ghosts or evil spirits are coming after them. So um, it's really like scaring a child and making them emotionally feel unloved and unsecure. Um, and uh, yeah, so we um, we analyzed uh, some data from the uh, nationally representative um, violence against children studies in Swaziland um, to to look at emotional abuse, particularly in girls, found very high prevalence rates, but also um, found that the perpetrators um, in Swaziland were slightly different to other. Um, uh, countries um, where general relatives, um, uh, female and male relatives, are not the primary caregivers, um, or I have to say not the biological parent. And I think, um, I mean, we can only interpret the data um, carefully, but I think part of the reasons in Swaziland has been very hard hit by the HIV epidemic. Um, there, uh, many of the children in the in the sample were orphaned, and um, few of them were actually living with their biological parent. So I think what we're basically seeing reflected in these numbers is that um, the people who are abusing again are the people who are caretaking, but they're not the biological parent just because the biological parent is absent. Hmm. And one of the outcomes that I found really interesting from this study of emotional abuse of girls in Swaziland was that the most common perpetrators were female relatives what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's unusual? Well, I, I don't think, um, I mean, I, you know, I think it is shocking in, uh, in the sense that we think, oh, why would a woman do that? But effectively, women are, you know, the, generally the primary caretakers or are the people that generally look after children. And so um, you would expect um, that if they are stressed um, or if they are, or if they don't feel so good um, on on a, a given day, and they're uh, they have a teenager to to look after, um, that if uh, the the if there is certain types of um, behavior from the teenager that we would consider probably normal behavior, but that aggravates them, that they would respond in such a way. I think um, in um, 
again, the situation in Swaziland is is very specific kind of to Swaziland and uh, South Africa and Lesotho um, in that sense that because of the HIV epidemic, the um, uh, the family um, in basically there's a whole generation of um, um, of of caregivers that have died of biological parents that have died, and um, so there are, um, in in these studies what we see is there are many caretakers um, who are siblings of of the original of the biological parents who look after an extraordinary amount of children so of or or grandparents um, who look after um, up to 10 or so of grandchildren because their children have died. Um, and that um, brings with it an, an enormous amount of stress together then with um, a certain um, stigma still attached to HIV. And that just in, results in an environment where, where, um, where caretakers um, who are, you know, relatives, may just be um, more abusive because they just they don't have the support on how to deal with um, you know w- with this amount of responsibility how they should be dealing with um, they don't know how to deal with traumatized children who've been through all of you know who've lost their parents who've seen their parents die in very horrible ways um, and um, and yeah they're just uh, completely overwhelmed and um, um, being overwhelmed can result in being um, emotionally abusive. One of the outcomes of the study was that participants reported feeling depressed or suicidal. And let's remember that these participants are children, which is just moving. Um, And beyond that, your studies, across your studies, uh, and there's so many of them, there's such an incredible depth of work that you've done. And you've, you've looked at data a lot and you've collected data a lot from communities that haven't previously been looked at. And across your studies, you've found that the data is just massive. I mean, the numbers are huge. And when I was researching, I found that that's pretty much the case for you know, everywhere. Child abuse is a massive problem everywhere. Uh, the, the numbers are off the charts and that makes me think that we're really not doing enough I mean as the general public we don't know enough we're not aware um, we're not talking about it and we're not doing enough to tackle it really when we should be focusing so much on this this issue so what do you think of that? Yes, and I yeah I think you're you're right. Um, I mean, so there there are um, huge initiatives now. The um, international community has caught on in that uh, the World Health Organization, UNICEF, um, have um, kind of gotten together. There's an um, end of violence against children initiative um, by several um, international. Uh, organizations uh, together with um, local governments um, so so you know it's on the agenda there's um, quite a bit of money going into that type of research now but uh, I think um, the, the general um, population is still blissfully unaware um, and that's one of the things that we see over and over again in ethics committees and in um, when uh, when we're talking to other researchers who don't focus on violence, when we say, how about you include measures of violence into your study? And they're like, oh no, we must, you know, if we measure it and ask about it, we must do something about it. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, it's happening anyway. You may want to, you know, catch up and um, and um, and include these measures. Um, but the, the, you know, ethics committees are, 
um, often coming back to us saying, how, how can you ask children these questions? This is horrific. Um, uh, other people who run studies saying we cannot include this. Governments are saying you can't ask children about exposure to violence. So across uh, most of um, Western Europe, actually, we are we, we don't have prevalence studies on violence against children that are collected during childhood because the governments are completely opposed to it. So what we have instead is um, studies where we ask adults about how much violence they have um, experienced in childhood, which isn't a super reliable indicator, but it's better than nothing, but still. But um, but yeah, and we, we see um, uh, huge um, uh, research um, outputs from the US, which are slowly trickling into um, the public health and um, social care debate um, also in, in Europe. So for example, the again, the Centers for Disease Control started a study on adverse childhood experiences, which um, includes violence in childhood amongst other things. Um, and they were looking at long-term outcomes into, um, um, into um, adulthood. And they, they found that um, people who experienced more than four childhood traumas have um, vastly higher uh, risk for um, uh, suicidality, alcohol abuse, um, uh, depression, um, pretty much every mental health condition on the books, but also more risky sexual behavior, um, more delinquency and so forth. So they're, they're really, um, um, and we see the 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 risks uh, the risk ratios are we're not talking like the risk um, is uh, double or triple but it's like twelve times as high um, as as for somebody who hasn't experienced uh, this amount of childhood trauma and so this this whole ACE debate for example has trickled also into the Scottish um, um, public health domain where people are now thinking about screening for adverse childhood experiences. Um, where you know, um, and and uh, there's a whole question about how to do that um, and how best to do it without just focusing on the negative effects, but also thinking about you know um, maybe there are also um, positive things happening in families where children are experiencing trauma, um, and how can these balance out some of the the childhood trauma? So there's a, there's a lot that we don't know, um, but yeah, it, it's awareness is is getting better. Um, but I think we're not there yet. Um, and I think what what we definitely don't have yet is um, is a uh, trauma-informed approach. So when, when we, uh, for example, when we speak to teachers or to um, doctors or um, nurses or so, what, what they don't have is a, a, an approach where they say, well, okay, the person in front of me is behaving in a way not because they want to annoy me or because they are you know, they're badly behaved or so, but it is a result of their trauma that their behavior is like this. Um, and, um, and that's still, you know, we're still a long way off um, from, from these, the, from services being aware of, of, um, um, of the long-term impacts of um, abuse. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important to look at all aspects of child abuse, not just limited to physical and sexual abuse, because, Studies like yours have found that the manifestations of emotional abuse and all kinds of abuse are linked. So, yeah, it's super important. Moving on, um, you've looked at access to child protection services and we're talking about these kids who are being violated and traumatized on a regular basis. We don't even know how much because we don't know the scale of the problem. 
for for the most part and these kids who do they turn to i mean can they really go to their immediate family for support because a lot of the times they are hushed when they speak to their family about being abused because most perpetrators tend to be someone that the family and the child know and trust so um you've looked at access to child protection and tell me about that what was that like yeah so we um we asked children um after we asked them if they had experienced violence or diff- what types of different violence they might have experienced we asked them if they'd ever um disclosed to anyone and what the kind of follow on um result was whether they you know whether they uh looked at whether they whether it was a supported disclosure as we call it where where parents or so forth believed them um and if they received any services and what we found is um is actually i mean that really surprised me but i mean it didn't surprise me because i lived in south africa so um but it it kind of in in this darkness the numbers surprised me in that um that almost every child knew where they should go if Uh, or what kind of services are available for victims of violence so they they were naming things like the police social workers trusted adults teachers um you know so um a child line which is like a telephone hotline in south africa so they um about 90 i think it was 96 or 97% of children um knew um where to go but um then when we looked at uh, those that had actually been a victim of severe violence um so by severe violence we we are looking at kids who experienced weekly physical abuse or weekly emotional abuse or contact sexual abuse so you know the kind of violence where in um in a high income country you would definitely be seeing a social worker at some stage um and um so if we looked at all of these kids that had disclosed that in our study we found that only 20% had actually disclosed to somebody that they trusted um so 80% had not disclosed and i think that is uh, quite telling so we were the first people in our survey that they told that this had happened to them um outside of their family circle or or like they that it had happened to them at all because um it only 20% had disclosed to anyone um and of the ones that had disclosed um 72% did get help um so they did um receive some form of help but interestingly most commonly the help that they received was not from a service as we would think like a social ser- like a social worker or or a health service but most of them received um help through um what we call community vigilante action so um they um went to their local street committee or their local chieftain and that local chieftain then went and beat up the perpetrator or got, got a group of people together and beat up the perpetrator or um they went to the family of the perpetrator and the family of the perpetrator paid the family of the victim um some form of um um penalty um in in order to, uh, for the you know for for raping the child or for um so forth so it's a, it's a very interesting um um uh i think to see in like the stark numbers how the 
the um, formal services are failing children, but informal services are providing some form of justice. Um, and um, we haven't, we didn't really collect enough data. So next year, um, we're, we've just gotten um, uh, two big grants. So next year, we're going to go um, and do in-depth qualitative work about what is happening with services, what are the experiences that people have with services. Because like from a, anecdotally, from being on the ground and from doing loads of referrals as part of the the study myself, I know that services are just vastly um, unresponsive. So you would go with a child and say, this child needs counseling, they've been raped. And the social worker will say, well, look at every other child here in my waiting room, um, they've all been raped. Um, so there's a um, there's a kind of an indifference um, um, in social um, in the social service personnel, and that is due to the fact that they're just vastly under-resourced and completely overburdened. So some of the social worker had a caseload of 3,000 children. You know, there's no no way you actually know each one of them. Um, you can't even get around to all of them in a year. So, um, uh, yeah, so this, there's, a, there's this kind of tension um, um, where then people seek services from elsewhere. And uh, we want to explore this more. So the, a part of this new study that we're doing next year, um, uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking at in-depth qualitative work around um, service use and what the experiences are with services and what the outcomes are and how supportive services are formally and informal service. How young were the children in this particular study? They were aged between 11 and 17. So uh, the mean age um, across the sample was 14 and a half. Hmm. I mean, it's it's hard enough for adults to report any kind of abuse and to get help. And we're talking about children here. So that's just, that's just so hard. Um, I want to move over to measurement now. And you've looked at developing measures for observing and evaluating child abuse on a global context. So tell me more about those and how do we observe child abuse better? <laughs> that is, I think that is a really good question. <laughs> um, and I don't pretend to have the answer. So what I started out doing was um, we, um, we have a few measures to measure child abuse that are used universally in many countries um, across the world. Um, and they're, um, they're kind of the gold standard measurements that we have at the moment. And the problem with them is that they're generally screening measures. So they um, ask, you know, um, did a certain type of uh, violence occur to you? Um, and how often has it occurred to you? So that it's um, it gives an indication of, um, of, you know, what is the prevalence really and how frequent is it? But what they don't do, they're not very sensitive to change. And if you do intervention studies, for example, you would want a measure that is able to pick up a change. You know, if you measure before the intervention and after the intervention, if you ideally have an impact of the intervention, you would want to see a decline. Um, but if your um, response code isn't um, sensitive enough um, and your um, abuse behaviors are too severe that they don't happen to anyone, then, um, then it's really difficult to measure a change in, in the behavior. So what um, I've done is um, um, done a lot of qualitative work to look at um, how can we change 
these measures to make them more suitable for intervention studies um, and uh, trialed um, uh, one of them in a randomized trial in South Africa. And this measure is now being used in, I think, maybe 20 or so um, studies of parenting interventions in sub-Saharan Africa. So um, so we're, I think we're getting there. It's um, we're, we're slowly developing a better a way of measuring. Um, what we're also, or what I'm also in the process of doing, is looking at how can we um, develop a minimum set of questions that tap into the most common types of abuse that we can use as screeners for large-scale studies. So when you think, for example, a, um, a global health survey or so, they will only have space for four or five items to be included in their survey on violence. And so um, so the, the kind of uh, reducing the amount of questions that we ask in order to still kind of reliably um, screen for people uh, or for children who are experiencing violence. And then the third thing that's basically where we, I actually as part of the qualitative work that we were doing and as part of the response that I was getting from ethics committees when they kept saying, oh, you can't ask about violence or you can't ask children these particular questions, um, was to, to do qualitative work on how do children ex actually experience these questions? What, um, how are they, what do they feel when they're being asked these questions? Do they think that it's being insensitive to be asked? Um, but also... Um, you know, how do they compute, you know, what does the question mean and um, what does the response code mean and do they actually answer the questionnaires in a way that we as researchers think they should? <laughs> um, because all of these questionnaires obviously are developed by experts, which are generally not children, but they're generally uh, researchers um, and adults. Um, and so I have a, a PhD student um, also in Edinburgh at uh, Moray House, uh, Lakshmi Nilakantan, who is looking at um, at three different contexts. So she's she's gone to Romania, to the Philippines and South Africa to look at how do children in these different contexts experience um, uh, being asked these questions and, you know, how what are the ways in which they come to the kind of answers that we are wanting them to give. And it's, um, I mean, this is only really preliminary and um, Lakshmi would really be the person to talk to about. But what we can say is uh, children definitely do not compute the questions the same way that we think they are computing them. So I think there is um, future work on measurement that needs to happen, including young people, um, to strengthen these measurements um, because they clearly do not um, think about the answers the way that we are thinking they are. Um, and the second thing is that all of them across all of the contexts were very clear that these questions are really important to ask and that they raise awareness um, and that um, it is absolutely vital that we do this type of research because it gives children the opportunity to think about what has happened to them or what is happening to their friends and to understand that, um, you know, these behaviors um, are happening to other children as well and not just to them. So, um, yeah, so that's the kind of, um, so this is ongoing work and we're nowhere near finished. I think there's still a huge amount of work to be done on measurement. I mean, how do children think differently about these answers if you could tell me briefly yeah so the way these questionnaires are structured generally is um you know has um has you know your caregiver um used an object to hit you in 
say the past month or the past year, right? And then we have um, a question about how often did it happen? What well, happened? Um, never, um, you know, uh, it happened uh, one to two times. It happened um, like every month. It happened weekly. And then we ask about the perpetrators. Um, so, uh, you know, who's who's the person who did it? Um, and um, it seems that generally um, children find it really difficult to think about um, the frequency in which these behaviors happen, particularly if you ask many behaviors that are kind of similar. Um, and um, and so they're um, the, the kind of, we definitely aren't getting the frequency response that we think we, you know, th that we're expecting. Um, so children then tend to basically, uh, particularly if you have to think over like the past year, um, kids don't think over the past year, they think more the past few weeks. And then they think about whether this, they don't think about whether this is representative for the whole year or not. So it's a, you know, there's a, um, it's, it's a, I think it's, a, it's also a difficult question. I mean, if I asked you how often were you hit in the past month or in the past year, you know, would you remember if it had happened 50 times? Would you know like the amount of times it happened? I think you would remember whether it happened or it didn't happen. And you would remember whether it happened a lot or just like once. Um, and so, you know, the the kind of like thinking about the frequency, I think, is, is, is a difficult, is difficult for children, more so than it is for adults. Um, and then the thinking about linking then the perpetrator to it, um, it, it seems that children um, don't think about each individual behavior as such that we ask and then think about each perpetrator. But they basically, the first question that they're getting asked is kind of the question that they carry through. <laughs> and so we, we, we need to think more about how we can make this easier for children. Hmm. Let's talk about prevention now. So you've looked at child abuse and its different facets in a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And you've also looked at South Africa and in South Africa, you've also done a dedicated study on prevention and prevention in low and middle income countries like South Africa. So tell me about that one. Yeah, so I mean, there, there are a number of prevention things that um, are ongoing. Um, so the, the first one, as you mentioned, was a systematic review, which is um, evidence synthesis, where basically we um, did a... Um, in-depth search for all studies that had looked at um, intimate partner violence or gender-based violence um, among adolescents and youth, so the age range 10 to 24, in countries with high HIV prevalence because um, HIV and gender-based violence are very closely linked. So um, uh, people who experience gender-based violence are at higher risk of HIV, but people who um, have HIV are also at higher risk of experiencing gender-based violence. So it's a, it's a kind of like a, a vicious circle. And um, so we wanted to look at what are specifically the provisions for, um, um, for, for children in AIDS-affected or in, in, in countries with high HIV uh, prevalence. And we found um, 21 interventions um, that um, that looked at um, well that addressed intimate partner violence or gender-based violence um, and basically it comes down to um, 
we don't know very much um, and the evidence is actually quite poor but what we do know is that multi-component interventions seem to work so interventions that don't just focus on one thing but interventions that um, strengthen in multiple ways so they strengthen um, they, they increase female empowerment they um, increase um, skills for girls um, they increase knowledge about sexual and reproductive um, rights um, uh, some of them um, provide self-defense skills some of them provide um, skills in terms of um, uh, you know budgeting running a business and so forth kind of like the kind of you know making girls stronger the problem is that most of these interventions focus on girls and are girls only interventions and i think that's a huge problem when we think when we talk about gender-based violence because we can make girls as strong as we want to if we do not shift the gender norms and and change the behavior of those that are perpetrating the violence um which is in this case mostly men and boys, then we are not going to ever eradicate violence. Um, and, and that is one of the things that has really strongly come come out of, of, of this uh, review is that um, you need to bring the, you know, these interventions just directed at girls are great and they do they seem to work, but they only work so far. And we would see much greater effects if we had interventions that included the whole community um, that were shifting gender norms across the whole community and that are um, including men and boys in their design um do you mean rehabilitating perpetrators as well well yes i mean i don't know rehabilitation of is, is a difficult um i think it's quite mm, difficult to to say um i think what is important is to to teach um people the skills um, to resolve conflict without using violence but to also um, you know shift the norms and that it is not okay to hit a woman just because she's of a different opinion or because she wants to explore her sexuality or because she wears a short skirt or you know whatever the reasons may be um, is you know that the, the norms need to shift um, in that the blame of experiencing violence is not um, shifted or is, is not on the victim or on the potential victim, but that, you know, the, the whole community is basically um, involved in the process of creating an environment where violence is not okay against anybody. So that's kind of the, the first line of prevention stuff that I've been doing. But more importantly, I've been involved in um, the development and um, trialing of parenting intervention to reduce child abuse in uh, South Africa. Um, and um, as um, part of that, I'm a member of Parenting for Lifelong Health, which is a kind of consortium between the universities of Oxford, um, where I was previously before I came to Edinburgh, now Edinburgh, um, the uh, University of Stellenbosch and Cape Town um, and Bangor University in Wales, um, where um, a group of researchers basically have gotten together and said, we need to do something to help parents um, with their parenting, uh, but we need to develop parenting interventions that are low cost so that they can run in low resource settings and that are not proprietary. So these, um, all of the interventions that we have developed are available free of charge um, and they're available through the World Health Organization website. Um, so the manuals for these, they're manualized interventions, which means that there's a very clear 
way um, in which facilitators need to approach the sessions. Um, and we have, um, it's a suite of parenting programs. So there's one for children aged zero to two, um, one for children aged two to eight, and then one for um, teenagers aged, uh, aged 10 to um um, to 17. Um, and um, these are interventions that are group-based where parents um, attend a weekly session. They run between 12 and 16 weeks, depending on the program. Um, and parents learn about um, uh, alternative ways, discipline, um, alternative ways of, you know, building relationships with their children, um, talking uh, to their children, building positive relationships, um, involving children in, you know, the day-to-day -day running of the house. Um, so just to kind of strengthen the relationship, basically. Um, and um, and the one for teenagers is actually attended by parents and teenagers together, where they basically practice with each other. Um, and um, and so far, so the, the uh, one for the child intervention has just been published, um, which has shown uh, huge effects um, in terms of um, parental mental health improvements and um, parent-child relationship improvements and reductions in harsh discipline um, and um, improvements in child behavior, um, whereas the teenager one was published last year. Um, and we've also shown um, reductions in uh, physical and emotional punishment um, and um, huge increases in uh, positive parenting um, and uh, caregiver mental health. Um, so I'm talking to you about this and I am really struggling to grapple with this problem. I mean, it's such a difficult issue. Is it emotionally draining or emotionally challenging to tackle on an everyday basis and you've been doing this research for years and years so does that get difficult and how do you balance your emotional well-being with it yeah it's a really good question and it's um, I think something that we all struggle with um, so yes it is emotionally challenging it is less challenging when you just look at the data but um, as somebody who has been on extensive field work uh, pretty much all of my research life, you know, when you actually see the cases and when you meet yet another child that has been raped at gunpoint or raped by an uncle for the uptense time, it just, uh, you know, when you, when you see the real children and the real stories, it can be incredibly hard. Yeah, and like you said, some of these children are sharing their experiences with someone, anyone, for the first time. Yeah, and so the what we have always had in the projects is um, is a kind of a um, supervisory structure where the research assistants um, who are actually collecting the data and have the the predominant contact with the participants. Um, they are able to talk to the managers um, or to um, the principal investigators who are all social workers, um, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, getting help with the cases, in terms of, um, you know, getting help with um, uh, um, emotional support. But there's also always been the provision that we, we partner up with um, local uh, psychologists or therapists um, so that all of our staff can access um, counseling if they need to. 
we are very clear on um, taking annual leave and you know making the most of annual leave without um, doing any work um, during that time and um, trying to balance work life um, in a way that um, you know that we don't try to bring these problems home but yes obviously we do um, and so in the past um, I think we've all everyone who's been in fields um, um, and then gets to go home has this feeling of abandoning children has um, you know more um, severe or less severe forms of um, post-traumatic stress um, in terms of you know what uh, what the experiences were in the field. Um, I think it's probably hardest for our field workers because they actually live in these environments and, you know, what they are seeing in our research is also happening in their families. So, um, so for them, these problems are very, very close to home. And so we're just trying to establish a culture where it is, um, okay or uh, not just okay but wanted to talk about um you know the emotions that surround the research where we're talking about um it's completely um normal to um to get people to access um the extra help that is available um but also where it is completely fine for people to um, you know take a day and um basically recover and think about and and talk about it or to not talk about it at all and just um, say they, they want to um, just not think about the research at all so um, yeah it's a it's a balancing act um, but I think on the other hand everyone that works on these projects is so super passionate um, and we often really have to remind people not to completely exhaust themselves and go above and beyond because the work is so emotionally draining and if they do not respect that they need off time and that they need annual leave and that they need to get away from it all um, then uh, then it becomes increasingly more difficult to cope with it and we've also in the past sent people on enforced holidays um, to you know for them to kind of get back to um, to not think about the research at all yeah but it's it is not easy and um um there are some days where i um, really don't want to engage with it and then there are other days where i think yeah you know this is the reason why we do it um so yeah, yeah. it goes both ways mm, that's that's very profound finally i want to ask you what's next for you you briefly mentioned future research and upcoming projects but tell us more about them Yes, so I've just been funded by the European Research Council um, to do a um, study on intergenerational violence transmission in South Africa. So the um, this will kick off in from January, hopefully, if all the paperwork gets signed in time. Um, and um, together with colleagues from the University of the Witwatersrand and uh, Northwest University in South Africa, we'll be doing a huge study on um, a three-generational longitudinal study where we are interviewing caregivers, young adults, and the children of the young adults. So basically uh, linked over three generations um, over um, uh, multiple years to see at um, how violence um, in one generation is transmitted into the next generation um, and what are potential factors to stop it. Um, and we're particularly interested in the government um, 
social protection provision because the government in South Africa is uh, providing uh, child grants, which are a bit like a child benefit um, to families under a certain um, um, income threshold. Um, we're looking at services um, and whether if people receive any services that helps them in uh, preventing um, transmission of violence. And we're looking at... Um, other types of um, social welfare that's available, for example, school feeding schemes um, that are um, available in all schools now um, in um, well in low income neighborhoods um, and um, free school um, so access to no fee schools and um, access to free school textbooks um, and access to school counseling. So basically looking at all of these and how that impacts outcomes and also how that impacts violence transmission. Mm, wow, that sounds incredible. Well, thank you, Franziska. Thank you for talking to me today. And really, thank you for the work that you're doing. You're you're actively making this world a better place for vulnerable children and for the rest of us. So thank you so much for that. Well, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about my research. That was Dr. Franziska Maing and thank you for listening. If you'd like to get involved, you can reach us through our Twitter handle, which is at talk underscore research. And in the description of this episode, you can find links to organizations that support victims of child abuse. So please feel free to use those. And episode four will be out soon. So watch the space or, you know, let your podcasting app do that for you by following or subscribing. I'm Asmita and this is Talking Research.